Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Barbara Weinstein, professor of history at New York University. She's just published a brilliant book entitled The Color of Modernity, Sao Paulo and the Making of Race and Nation in Brazil, in which she explores the ways the discourses concerning a political revolt in 1932 contributed to the production of the region of Sao Paulo, understood as the engine of modernity for Brazil, and narrated its central actors as white middle-class men, despite the participation of a wide variety of people. Weinstein contributes nuanced arguments to debates about histories of inequality in Latin America. Barbara, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about your trajectory? What made you decide to be a historian? How did you come to work on Brazil, which is where your two previous books are set, and how did you arrive at this particular project? Okay, so becoming an historian, I think it can be explained mainly through my engagement with radical politics as an undergraduate and coming to the conclusion that history was the discipline that would help me think critically about the world. And uh, so I think that is in a nutshell what took me to history. It wasn't like I entered um, undergraduate school as a history buff. I, in fact, wanted to be pre-med. But uh, I think that to some extent, even though my politics are not as radical as they once were, I still feel like there's a connection between studying history and my sort of critical view of the world. So as for Latin America, I became very interested in the Cuban Revolution, not surprisingly, as an undergraduate. But then in graduate school, my advisor was, uh, as, as you know, a uh, very eminent uh, Brazilian historian, Emilia Biocci da Costa. And she was the one who convinced me that I should shift from Argentina, which is what I was originally going to study, to Brazil. And I think it was a very good suggestion on her part. I'm very happy that I I made that decision. But it was partly because I was interested in issues of race and inequality, and Brazil certainly seemed like an appropriate place to study an issue like that. So how did you arrive at this particular project? Well, uh, it's partly an outgrowth of my previous book uh, for Social Peace in Brazil, which looked at relations between industrialists and workers and programs developed by industrialists to sort of remake the working class in Sao Paulo. And I was one of my dissatisfactions with the book, uh, the previous book, was that I felt that I hadn't been able to grapple sufficiently with the question of race, that I was mainly looking at class and gender, but that the the issue of race, even though I felt it was quite present, I hadn't really figured out a way to talk about it that made me feel that I had really um, come to grips with it. So I started thinking about other ways to um, approach the question of race in Sao Paulo and and particularly what 
how Paulista identity, that is the identity of people from the state and city of Sao Paulo, which Paulista, uh, how Paulista identity took on certain racialized meanings, particularly, as I argued, sort of a kind, became a kind of whiteness. And so that's where the idea for the book uh, originated. And then I have to say, in you know, as a matter of full disclosure, that the other um, the force that shaped this book uh, was not an intellectual one, but um, changes in my personal life because of um, issues involving my children, particularly my son, who has a significant disability. And what that meant is that I could no longer have the luxury of simply going off for six months or a year to an archive and just fishing around for documents. I had to develop a project where I was could fairly quickly figure out where the documents were likely to be. The documents would be relatively accessible and well-organized. And so to some extent, I had to think about this project in both practical and sort of intellectual terms. So I'm really interested in the archive that you used, and I want to talk about that later. Uh, and I also want to talk about the short-lived revolt that's at the center of the book. But first, mm-hmm. I want to talk about region, because region is really important in this book, and especially in the way it relates to race. And it, the book makes an argument for the for thinking about region as an outcome of historical processes. At one point, mm-hmm. you even invoke Bourdieu, and you argue that region is performative. So can you tell us why region is so important as a category of analysis to you? In, in a sense, I got I got um, the feeling that in part you were pushing back a little bit against the trend of transnationalism that seems to have spread yeah. through the field. <laughs> well, to some extent, I, you know, I, I wasn't initially doing that because the um, sort of move toward transnationalism it, to some extent postdates my interest in this topic. Uh, or the, the full-throated move toward transnationalism. But I will say that I felt that uh, this move uh, ignored other ways of rethinking the nation uh, or thinking outside or beyond the nation. So it's partly that. It's partly that I think a, a feature that has long been recognized in Latin America, which is and, and of not of course not o- and of course not only in Latin America, a feature is the regional ine- regional inequalities. I mean, there are very few uh, Latin American nations in which there aren't regions that are seen as the more modern quote unquote and the more backward quote unquote regions. And so, part of what I wanted to do was to get a sense of how this happened how certain regions become associated with modernity and, I would argue, whiteness and others get associated with backwardness and the sort of become the racialized other. And this kind of conversation started way back in the 60s with the idea of internal colonialism. And then because of its sort of, I think, overly reductionist um, materialist arguments, that idea sort of got set aside. And so what I'm trying to do is revisit that question, but to think about it in a way that doesn't just go back to what I see as an overly sort of structuralist and uh, a somewhat um, reductionist argument about uh, economic relations. So 
could you give us a very quick summary of the uprising in Sao Paulo of the, in 1932 that's at the center of the book, just so that we all uh, know what you're talking about, even though you're really, sure. as you say, you're much less interested in what happened than in the narratives and discourses that shaped it as it was happening and in historical memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I could just say quickly that one of my readers who was, a, you know, for the manuscript, who was a tremendous reader and gave me great um, suggestions and comments uh, really wanted me to talk more about the causes of the uprising, and I made it very clear that that was the one thing, the one piece of um, advice I could not take because the whole point is not to reduce the uprising to a set of causes, but rather look at how the uprising took shape over time and the way in which the process of deciding to rise up. Uh, shaped its goals, its, uh, you know, what it meant to the people participating in it. So just very quickly, uh, or as quickly as I can, very quickly, maybe impossible, but as quickly as I can. uh, So up until 1930, uh, the state of Sao Paulo was the dominant political region in Brazil. And in 1930, Getulio Vargas takes power and establishes a kind of semi-dictatorship in which he very deliberately uh, attacks the, not not violently, but through policies, um, reduces or attacks the dominance of Sao Paulo to reduce its position within the national political system and to basically take apart the uh, Paulista political machine. And uh, this, not surprisingly, um, generates a great deal of uh, opposition from various groups in Sao Paulo, including some groups that had supported Vargas. So even people who had actually been in his camp at the beginning of Vargas's regime uh, gradually, and or actually quite quickly, uh, turn against him and express outrage at the uh, at his treatment of Sao Paulo. And this produces a very strong narrative that Sao Paulo, as Brazil's center of modernity, as by far the most prosperous state, as um, the most industrialized state, the most modern state, uh, that Sao Paulo must be the leader of the Brazilian nation and that any other region of uh, Brazil is to some extent um, subordinate and needs to be subordinate to Sao Paulo. So you have the emergence of this very strong regionally regional chauvinist discourse that I argue then becomes the sort of underpinning for the various groups that have um, a, a variety of political motivations for um, spurring this movement. And then eventually, as Vargas um, you know, refuses to back down, I mean, he tries to compromise, but he won't completely compromise with Sao Paulo. And the ultimate effect is that the Paulistas decide to take up arms and uh, declare a civil war against Vargas, against the federal government, in effect. And uh, they initially hope that other states will join them, but because it's such a regional chauvinist movement, it's not surprising other states uh, refuse to join them, and so they end up being isolated and fairly quickly defeated. It's only, the civil war lasts slightly less than three months, and about 1,500 people die in the conflict. So it's not by any means a massive conflict, but it has enormous um, uh, cultural, symbolic, and discursive weight for 
uh, uh, Paulista political culture, not just then, but going forward. So one of the things I really liked about the book was the structure. And so in the first part, you walk us through the many ways in which the revolt was imagined as white, male, middle class. And Sao Paulo was, by association, imagined as modern and progressive. And I, I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, but then the second uh, is about uh, the second part is about historical memory and how that shifts and changes over time. So yeah. could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to structure it and why you decided to structure it that way? Well, I, first of all, I really wanted to go into the post-war period, the post-1945 period, partly because uh, there, you know, there are many books on regionalism and regional identity in Brazil. This is, so this is not a new topic. I think the way I approach it is new, but the topic itself is not new. And one of the problems, I would argue, with the literature is that it typically um, adheres to a certain kind of uh, triumphalist narrative that is produced by the Vargas regime, which is that he is successful at dismantling regional machine, political machines, regional identities, and that regionalism and regional identity after 1945 um, are no longer important features of the Brazilian political landscape. And so it was very important for me because that, you know, that's precisely what I'm arguing against is the idea that there is this sort of march, of, you know, this progressive march toward an ever more cohesive um, national identity. It was very important for me to show not only that in the 1930s you have this regional movement that contests that it's contesting contesting Vargas's view of the nation. I wouldn't say it's contesting the nation so much as a particular view of the nation. But not only do you have this uprising, but then you have a series of events in the 1950s that demonstrate the continuing significance for uh, for Brazilians in a number of regions, but particularly for the Paulistas, the continuing um, significance of regional identity. And the Cuarto Centenario, the the fourth centennial of São Paulo's founding, seemed to me an ideal moment. This is 1954, so it's well after the the, the, the World War II, well, it's well into the post-war period, and it's an... uh, a year-long series of events that in which Paulista history, achievements, culture are very central. And so it seemed to me a, a sort of perfect occasion to study for looking at how in this new time period, uh, a period associated with very strong nationalist movements in Brazil, how regional identity continues to structure some some Paulo's view of, or some Paulista's view of the nation. Yeah. So going back to the first part, going back to the the revolt and the immediate aftermath, one of the things that you do is is that you include you make your argument by way of including possible exceptions or challenges to your own argument, mm-hmm. um, and um, most notably in the first part in the participation of a black military unit, and also in the very visible participation of women. You pose those as puzzles, which you then solve, and I really I really <laughs> like that. So can you tell us how actually the participation of people of African descent and of women work within your argument, which is about the, the whitening, basically, of Sao Paulo and of this revolt? Well, I think the participation of women is the easier one for me to address, because... 
although I was rather taken aback when I first started reading the documentation by the constant references to the participation and the role of women in the uprising. As I say in the book, I mean, that's something that historians are just not accustomed to. Typically, we have to kind of ferret out the role of women in various uh, events, occasions, processes. So even though I was taken aback, very quickly, um, as I started to trace the use of this term, the paulista woman, amulia uh, paulista, I, I could see that this was the figure of the Paulista woman was a figure of the middle and upper class. She was a white woman and she was a woman who was not being incorporated into the movement as a full political participant, but rather she was being incorporated into a political movement as an, a depoliticized figure. And so that the usage of it was so consistent, particularly among male writers and speakers, that I, I fairly quickly figured out you know, how to think, how I thought about the participation of women, particularly as a participation that wasn't necessarily a kind of source of emancipation or, politi- or political mobilization in the usual sense. The participation of Paulistas of color, of Afro-Paulistas, Paulistas of African descent, uh, that I found trickier to understand. And partly it did reinforce one point that I wanted to make clear in the book, which is that it's not that the Sao Paulo, that the Paulistas were refusing the idea that Brazil is a society that is racially harmonious, which, as many people who have read anything about Brazil knows, it's sort of one of the the claims that Brazilians have made historically, although many Brazilians have also contested it, but they claim historically that they are a, a racial democracy or a racially harmonious society. And so my point was not to say that the Paulistas rejected that view, but that to get that they simultaneously uh, argued for their participation in the racial harmony of Brazilian society and their superiority as a predominantly white society, which seems uh, contradictory, but what I would argue is that we have history provides us with tons of evidence of contradictory things being put together in the same political movement. So in some sense, because they were still making these claims to being a racially democratic society, this opens a space for black paulistas to say, well, then we're part of the society too, and we should be able to claim some of the benefits of its modernity. And so that's the way I saw that. I saw the, particularly the leadership within the black community seeing this movement as an opportunity to press some of their claims and to uh, push the Paulista leadership, political leadership, to make good on this claim that they are not racist and that, like the rest of Brazil, they reject racism, they see racism as un-Brazilian. But I found it something that was very difficult to sustain. Uh, if I, I don't have a great deal of sources expressing the views 
of the black men who participated in the Black Legion. So I don't know to what extent they found themselves you know, deeply disappointed by their treatment by the white paulistas, but I, I would imagine from the few sources I have that for them it turned out to be a, a deal with only very limited benefits. And in fact, to some extent, I think many of them, uh, while taking pride in having fought for Sao Paulo, ended up feeling embittered by their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, the the tension with the kind of notion of racial democracy, which uh, exists throughout the book and throughout your account of it, is really one of the it's one of the more nuanced arguments that you make, and in particular with with this um, the way that you talk about Freire mm-hmm. and, um, and also it, as a way to avoid talking about transnationalism, right? Because Freire is al- almost always talked about writing in comparison to the U.S. And here you right. really make it, you make a very compelling argument that maybe he was also writing in, in relation to the regionalism that was, mm-hmm. that was taking shape. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the things that I expect to, uh, in, not so much in the U.S., but in Brazil, I, you know, I expect people to, uh, you know, sort of debate with me on that. I don't know if they'll reject the idea, but I do think it'll, uh, stimulate a certain amount of debate. But I think if we look at the context in which Ferretti begins to write his um, work that both underlies his sort of regionalist writings and then eventually his his masterwork, uh, Casa Grande Senzala, The Masters and the Slaves, the, if you look at the context in which he's writing it, uh, I think the um, contest between the Northeast and Sao Paulo, the tension between the two regions, is informing his sort of, uh, intellectual world much more than any kind of relationship with the United States, which is not very present. The U.S., U.S. culture is not very present in Brazil in the late 20s, early 30s. And even though he lived in the United States for a while and it had a certain impression on him, uh, so did many, many Brazilians. And it's not unusual for Brazilians in this period to you know, spend a little time in the U.S., do some studies. Uh, so the idea that his um, residence in the United States is the sort of guiding idea or the guiding contrast uh, of his writings uh, is really not very compelling to me. And particularly if we look at subsequent writings and in which he takes on Sao Paulo much more directly, I think that a very good argument can be made for his primary sort of interlocutor, uh, you know, opponent interlocutor being Sao Paulo. Yeah. So if we move through the book to the commemorations, you note that the revolt was so brief, actually, that the memorialization started almost right away. Yeah, (laughs) right. Really fascinating. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the emphasis of the early historical memories before we move to the 1950s? Well, most of the early writings about the um, uprising are uh, written by participants and either journalists who covered it or people who were actually participating in the uprising. So much of the early writings were sort of memoirs and chronicles. And, uh, I, but, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the last substantive chapter, I think it's chapter eight, is the way in which 
uh, certain kinds of political divisions within Sao Paulo quickly reassert themselves after the uprising. So within, I'd say, a year or two, you have certain divisions that predated the, uh, the um, Vargas' seizure of power in 1930 reasserting themselves. And then you have people starting to um, uh, interpret the uprising and the motives for the uprising and the outcomes of the uprising from their different political positions. So it was quite striking to me how quickly the um, memory of the uprising started becoming sort of factionalized and bifurcated. It continues, so the uprising continues to be very important among different groups in Sao Paulo, but it's not one single memory. So how did that start to shift in the 1950s? What changed? Uh, well, particularly in the 1950s, I think uh, what you have is uh, you, you still have multiple uh, memories of the 1932 uprising, but increasingly people who are taking a more sort of left nationalist position are sort of distancing themselves and being critical of the uprising, whereas the people who are really embracing and celebrating the uprising are increasingly taking a, uh, an explicitly sort of conservative and I would say anti-populist and ultimately pro-military position so that I see the, the factions that are most um, sort of enthusiastically commemorating the uprising by the late 50s are very much being the same factions that in the early 60s will start to call for a military seizure of power. Right, and I want to get to the the legacies of that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, you end your, your final chapter, which you just mentioned, chapter eight, it's called the White Album, and <laughs> I imagined you finding that and feeling like you really had landed something, not just because mm-hmm. of the way it really supports your claims, but also because you get to call the final chapter of your book the White Album, and so yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very cool. Um, so can, you, can you tell us a little bit about the White Album? Well, it's uh, first of all, I should say that I found it very early in the process of doing the research for this project. It's one of the very first things I found that made me decide that this project could really work. But also by finding that album or that book, I mean, it's a sort of large coffee table type book, uh, um, album de familia, family album. By finding that, because this was a book published in 1954 as part of the commemorations in 54 about the 1932 uprising, it was sort of the, um, the, that piece, that key that said, okay, those are the two moments I want to look at. And so the White Album was, my, my name for it, the White Album was the sort of entry into the way in which I organized the book. And I found it amazingly enough, in the library of the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where I was teaching at the time. And so, um, and and one of the advantages of this project has been that much of the material is print material, like memoirs and chronicles, that I've been able either to access in libraries or to um, get through my own libraries where I've been teaching or through interlibrary loan. And when I opened up the White Album and started, you know, looking at... I. For one thing, I was really struck by the almost complete absence of text 
and the way in which the images were supposed to speak for themselves. And I think whenever you see something like that, what you can conclude is that the meanings of these images are regarded, at least by the person composing the book, as fairly transparent. And if the meanings are transparent, you know that people have seen these images, they've talked about these images, uh, they connect to other things that are important to people and to their culture and to their political views. So the very nature of the book, you know, the fact that it's done and put together in 54, about, 30, about the 32 uprising, that it uh, clearly had these sort of meaning-saturated um, images, and that it assumed, I mean, it's very clear from the title of it, the album, the family album, it assumed a certain consensus among at least certain groups of paulistas of what the meaning of the uprising was and how it should be remembered. So that made it a, a very powerful document for me. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you that you're using that you use lots of documents that you could find easily that were printed or published or available through interlibrary loan but still it seems to me a really rich archive and it seems also and correct me if I'm wrong that this is an archive that hadn't really been mined before or at least used in quite the same way that you're using it is that the case and 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 can you tell us a little bit about the this the range and depth of your archive Okay, so there were actually several archives that I used in Sao Paulo. The most important one was the collection on the 1932 uprising that was put together in the state archive, which included all kinds of material, correspondence, bulletins, reports, both by the um, pro-federal forces and by the uh, what were called the constitutionalist or uh, paulista forces. And so I, that was probably the single most important source of materials. And clearly, they had put this together through donations from all sorts of different uh, groups and participants over a long period of time. The other very, oh, you know, another very important archive was, which no longer exists, and I think most of their materials were sent to the state archive, was at the uh, Historical Institute, the Instituto Historico in Sao Paulo, which had an, um, a collection of newspaper clippings and other materials on the 32 uprising. And then for the 1954 commemorations, there were um, all the materials of the organizing committee are archived in the municipal archive of the city of Sao Paulo. And so those were actually pretty well organized. There was some indexing, which in many, there were many Brazilian archives where there's no index at all, and you just have to go through box after box searching. So these were all fairly well organized archives and all, you know, enormously important for the, for the book. So very different from, for example, my first book on the Amazon rubber boom, where often I would just go for days without finding anything that would be useful or interesting. For this project, most of the time when I sat down, I knew it was very likely I would find material in these collections that were directly related to what I was um, writing about and thinking about. But I will say that as is always the case in Brazilian materials, it was, it was the rare document that talked explicitly about race. So you still had to read these this documentation uh, very 
in a you know in a particular way. Uh, even so, even though I would not say race wasn't there, but again, what I would say is that it's typically implicit, not explicit. And you know, I sometimes kid my colleagues who do U.S. history that I'm envious, quote unquote, of them because, of course, people will be much more explicit about race and racism in U.S. historical documents. And the one person who makes a flat-out racial characterization of the Paulista uprising, who supports it, is the U.S. consul in Sao Paulo, who said they're fighting for their white man's culture. But most Paulistas. Except for the separatists, which I, I talk about as a kind of unusual group, um, most Paulistas would not have put it so bluntly. And so it, it was still, it wasn't, in this case, it wasn't so hard to find the documents. I think what was more challenging was how to read the documents. Yeah. Um, so the legacies of the making of region for Brazilian politics and culture today. Sao Paulo is imagined still as the, the engine of modernity, I think, in Brazil, right? Yes. Yes, I think even now, though, I think the recent severe drought and water shortage may be starting to undermine that, uh, that image. So. Um, and so you, you started to mention a little bit about the, the meanings that the memories of the revolt took on just as the military regimes were beginning. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the, uh, the moment that I focus on, since, you know, I don't have a, you know, full discussion of it. I just have a brief discussion in the epilogue, but, you know, I, I thought about looking at the newspaper coverage of the period leading up to the military seizure of power. So that would be the first few months of 1964 up to March 31st, when, and April 1st, when the military came to power, and trying to see if there were any indications of invocations of 1932 by those groups who, who supported the military, who were calling for the military to seize power, or those groups who were not calling for the, or against the military seizing power. And not only did I find some invocations of 1932, but in this case, I didn't have to tease them out, and they were quite explicit. And I mean, to my amazement, The Estado uh, de São Paulo, which was then the most important daily newspaper in São Paulo, and in some sense still is, uh, that their lead editorial on the military seizure of power uh, said, uh, you know, 1964 is 1930, is 64 is 32 twice. So twice over. So in fact, 32 doubled is 64, 32 the year of the uprising, 64 the year of the military seizure of power. And Whereas other newspapers that were opposed to the military seizing power talked disparagingly about the presence of banners at the various protests that took place in the run-up to the military seizure of power, protests by the right, big demonstrations by the right calling for the overthrow of Goulart, that there were all these banners uh, celebrating the 1932 uprising in Sao Paulo's place in Brazil. So, in, you know, in a I'm not arguing that there's a kind of political continuity between 1932 and 1964 in the usual sense that people will mean it, but rather that this was a sort of an ongoing set of images about Sao Paulo and its relationship to the rest of Brazil that could be you know, sort of refurbished and mobilized in this 
somewhat different context. And I think even now, I think in some of the demonstrations we've seen right now against you know, corruption, against Dilma and her presidency, against the Workers' Party in Brazil, once again, you can see that some there are some explicitly racist placards, that, but they're not so common. But there are a lot of um, signs that denounce programs that mainly benefit the northeast of Brazil, that kind of highlight the fact that Sao Paulo is being um, maltreated by the rest of Brazil. So you can still see that kind of undercurrent in a lot of the more uh, right-wing demonstrations taking place. So that I think it's very much a discourse that's been captured by the right uh, and that is mainly aligns with a certain kind of right-wing view of Brazil. Mm-hmm. And gets mobilized at key moments, it sounds yeah. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, again, I want to be very clear that I'm not talking about um, a continuous political movement. As I said, it surprised it surprised me how quickly after the 32 uprising that politics kind of fragmented and people who had previously you know, been fighting together against Vargas were then fighting against each other in uh, various political contests. So, uh, so it's a more a kind of discursive continuity than, uh, uh, than one of actual political parties or organizations. Right. Um, So we've taken up lots of your time today, and I'm really very thankful. But I wonder if we can close with you saying a few words, just a few words about what you're working on at the moment. Well, you know, somebody said, I heard somebody say recently that when you have a baby, somebody, nobody turns to you and says, so when are you having your next baby? (laughs) Although I think my mother might have done that, but... (laughs) But um, but I think that's not an appropriate comparison because a baby and a book are really very different. So uh, I I don't actually have a major project in mind. I'm currently chairing my department. So one effect of that is I have very little time for my own work. My I but I do have two projects that are sort of in the short run. What I'll be turning my attention to. One is with my colleague, James Woodard. I'm involved in doing a, an English language edition of a brilliant book by the late John Montero called Negros da Terra, Blacks of this Land, which is about Indian slavery in colonial Sao Paulo. And so that I'm hoping to spend much of my summer working on the translation and edition of that book together with James. And then the other thing... Um, sort of starting to putter around with is putting together a book of my essays. I've published a lot of articles over the last uh, 15, 20 years that are not directly from any of my books that are and often go off in different directions. And Duke has expressed some interest in doing a collection of my essays. So I'm starting to think about which ones I would want to include, what kind of introduction I would like to write. So that's where, mainly with the two things I'm working on right now. Those sound like terrific projects. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome, Alejandro. Who doesn't like talking about their book? (laughs) (laughs) Bye. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.